Thank you very much. Good morning. Great to see you. And um, yeah, as Richard said, the theme for this morning as we continue this series we're looking at from Genesis 1 to 11 uh, is the origins of grace. And actually, we're going to be looking maybe at not an expected uh, source of this, which is the story of Noah, which starts in chapter 6. But speaking of grace, we have, of course, seen the thread of God's grace running through the story so far in the previous chapters. So we see God's grace in the fact that he didn't just put an end to Adam and Eve when they sinned, or he didn't put an end to Cain when he sinned. He spared them. But more than that, he clothed Adam and Eve. There's this token of grace within the judgment of sin. And then he put this mark on Cain. So again, there's this token of grace, a mark which protected Cain from people killing him. So there's this token of grace within the judgment of sin. There there did have to be judgment. There had to be justice. There had to be consequences for sin, but it's balanced by God's desire to show mercy and grace. But then even more than that, there was the promise that he made to Adam and Eve of a seed, of one who was to come from the descendants of Eve, who would come and crush the head of the serpent, who would be the rescuer, who would bring salvation to the world. And then we see that promise and that hope restored and continued through the birth of Seth later on, when all hope seemed to be lost because of what had happened with Cain and Abel. It's God's grace. We see God's grace running through this amazing story that we're journeying through together this term. But then we come to the story of Noah, and actually we see maybe the clearest example so far, the most stark example of God's grace because of the very stark backdrop of judgment that it's set against. And we see that promise of salvation through judgment continued and demonstrated in a very concrete way. And those are the two strands I'm going to focus on this morning, judgment and salvation. So let's have a read. I'm not going to read the whole story. That would take quite a long time. I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 5. So the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make, it, uh, make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. But everything on earth, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal. And then he goes on and he describes more about animals, about food, uh, and then the flood starts and they all get into the ark. And then in, in the next chapter it says, Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. 
And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Now, there are, of course, all sorts of questions that revolve around this very ancient story. Did such a flood ever happen? And, and if so, what was the extent of it? Was it global? Was it regional? Was it local? Is there archaeological? Is there geological evidence for this? Is this text basically fundamentally at odds with what is scientifically possible? What about other ancient flood stories, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Epic of Atrahasis? You know those, don't you? You've read them. What about those, though? Where do they fit in the story? Now, you'll be very pleased to know that if you don't have questions like that, I'm not going to talk about them this morning. But if you do have questions like that, this evening is our origin seminar in here. So be here for that to ask those kind of questions. More details on that at the end of the meeting. But one thing that has always puzzled me about this story is how it's often used as a kind of a nice children's story. You know, with the giraffe's head that pokes out of the top of the ark and um, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, hurrah. When actually what happens is that basically nearly everybody and everything dies. Which is not your usual children's story. This is, in many ways, a deeply, deeply uncomfortable story. And it's one of those stories that people will point to to suggest that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament's all about judgment and smiting people and wiping people out with impunity, just, just God deciding to wipe people out, whereas the New Testament God is all love and grace and, and fluffiness and that kind of thing. I mean, try telling that to Ananias and Sapphira, by the way, in Acts chapter 5. Um, look it up later if you're not sure what that is. But this is one of those stories, actually, that many people would point to and say, well, I just can't believe in a God who's like that. I can't, a God who would do this. How, could you, how can you come to terms with a God who can do something like this? Because the notion of divine judgment, the idea of divine judgment is not a popular one, particularly in our culture. It's not a popular idea. And stories like this that seem to demonstrate God's judgment in a particularly stark and shocking way well, that can prove to be a very big stumbling block for people. So I want to start there by thinking about judgment, both from a Christian point of view and from a non-Christian point of view as well. So even as Christians, we can read accounts like this and others in the Bible where our instinctive reaction is, I don't like that. That is it's not comfortable. And we might think, that seems harsh. God's judgment seems harsh. When it seems unfair to us, you know, when we can't think of a good reason for something and therefore we assume that there's not a good reason because if there was, I would know it. I would see it, which of course is flawed logically and is really the height of arrogance. But when we go down that line of thinking that's very harsh, actually we implicitly question God's character, that he's not actually loving or just, but that he's capricious and erratic. I just want you to have a look at this video clip uh, where R.C. Sproul is asked a question about the severity of God's judgment on Adam, a bit earlier in the story, but the severity of God's judgment on Adam, I think he expresses it better than I could. So if we could show that. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt 
defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's uncompromising, but here's the thing. As a Christian, as a believer in God myself, I can accept that rebuke. Because I know how easy it is for me to lose sight of who God is and who I am. I reduce God down to my level somehow. I know how easily I can do that and forget he's the creator, I am created. He is pure and holy, I am flawed and worldly. And if I ever find myself questioning the character of God, then I know that the problem is actually with me and my understanding, my, my perception and my limited understanding of who God is and of the situation. The problem's not with him, and so I can quickly realign my thinking in that case. But that's for me as a Christian. But what if you're not a Christian? What if for you, stories like this are a prime reason why you find you just can't believe in God because this idea of divine judgment is just such a huge stumbling block. Well, I want to suggest to you, if you're in that position, I want to suggest to you that to not believe in divine judgment actually presents a far bigger problem for you than to believe in it. So let me explain what I mean. What is the key problem in this story of Noah? The, the key problem is the wickedness of man. A, a picture is painted in no uncertain terms of the extent, uh, the depths which things have reached. And there's this one line which sums up, which says, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, that is comprehensive, isn't it? I don't think you can get more comprehensive. Every inclination, not some, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You can't get more comprehensive than that. It's a pretty damning assessment. About 1,600 years have passed between Adam and Noah. And in that time, there's clearly been a huge degeneration, a deterioration to the point where humanity is a complete mess. It is a depraved mess. Man, who according to the Bible, was made in the image of God for the glory of God, has become utterly defiled, utterly corrupted, and it tells us that the earth was filled with violence because of them. Because of mankind, the earth is filled with violence. There was a big problem a huge problem with human violence, with human depravity, corruption, which can, of course, show itself in all sorts of different ways. But clearly, as it's described, it was at a point where something had to be done. This cannot go on any further. Something has to be done. Now, we still have a big problem of human violence and evil and human depra uh, depravity and corruption. We still have that problem. There are many things that we look at in today's world that are absolutely terrible. 
absolutely terrible, and we look at it and think something has to be done. So that's got to stop. Somebody, please, has got, got to put a stop to this. But here's the problem. If you don't believe in judgment, if you don't believe there will be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, then you have no solution to the problem. There's no solution. And in fact, you just create more problems for yourself. So first of all, in taking that line, you create an intellectual problem for yourself. So one aspect of human violence and uh, depravity that we're seeing, we're very aware of at the moment, is in all the allegations that are coming out of Hollywood and out of Westminster of varying degrees of sexual harassment, of abuse, even rape. And actually, what seems to be at the heart of that problem is the abuse of power. It's what it revolves around. It's the abuse of power, where power is exercised in such a way as to contravene the human rights of the other person. Question, why is there anything wrong with that? What's the problem? What are human rights? Why do they exist? Who decides? You know, there's no scientific basis for human rights. With a purely naturalistic worldview, we have no more basic rights than a virus or than a bacteria. When you look at the natural world, you know, what, why, is, why is there anything wrong with the abuse of power? If you look at the natural world and you see a big fish eating a smaller fish, I, watched, I was watching Blue Planet last night, actually, of the recording of it. Uh, this squid ate a smaller squid. And then a bigger squid came along and ate that one. But you don't look at that and think, oh, that's terrible. Something's got to be done. This has got to be stopped. Somebody has to put a stop to this. No, there's no problem with that, because you look at it and think, that's natural. That's the natural world, isn't it? No problem. But when we see a big nation bullying a smaller nation, or we see abuse of power on an individual human level, then there is a problem. Why? Why is it a problem? If there's no God who's, who is outside of nature and who created us and who put his imprint and his values in us, there's no basis whatsoever for complaining against human violence because it's just part of nature where the strong will prey on the weak. It's just... What happens? Humans are no different from any other animal or organism. There's no basis for moral outrage in the first place because whose version of morality are we going by and what is morality anyway? If there's no God, in theory, everything is permissible. Everything. And yet we know it's not. Every human being knows that it's not and that humans are different from animals. But if there's no such thing as a divine judge, then there's no intellectual defence against human violence and the naturalness of human violence. Why are you bothered? So there's an intellectual problem with not believing in divine judgment, but then there's also an emotional problem. Because when you are wronged in some way, when you experience human violence against yourself, whether that's physical or emotional, when you experience human violence yourself, you're angry. And that's a very natural response, and it's a response that comes out of a sense of deep injustice. You're angry because this is injustice, you, because you've, you've got a sense of being violated in some way. And it's widely acknowledged that if anger is left unchecked, it will poison your life. It, it will poison you. It, it, bitterness will destroy you. It won't solve the problem. And so quite apart from any faith or religious worldview, you can, it, it is possible to, to logically come to the position of seeing a need to forgive and let go of anger because you holding on to anger is destroying you and not the other person anyway. So there's a logical rationale to say forgive, let go of that anger. But if you've been seriously wronged, you know that it's impossible to do that just as a simple act of the will. 
And if you can, you probably haven't been that seriously wronged. You haven't been violated. But our sense of justice and injustice is so strong because we're made in the image of God that the only way to be able to forgive, truly forgive, and to let go of anger is to believe in a judge. That there is a judge who will see that all things are put right in the end and that you are not that judge. You don't have the power to give that person what they deserve anyway. But there is one who does. You don't have the knowledge to really know what they deserve. You might think you know what they deserve, but you don't have the perfect knowledge to really know exactly what that person deserves, but there is one who does. And you don't actually have the right to give them what they deserve unless you're prepared to be judged for all that you deserve, for every wrong you've ever done in your life, and you're prepared to be judged for that. You don't have the right to give them what they deserve, but there is one who does. There's one who is, who is without sin. But the practice of forgiveness requires a belief in a divine judge. Otherwise, you have no solution to the emotional problems that are caused by human violence. Now, that's really the idea that's put forward by Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian. He, he says this, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Did you hear that, what he said? The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, violence thrives today. Violence flourishes today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. Violence gets worse because of a belief that there's no judgment. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. What he's saying is that if you think that believing in a God of vengeance is what leads to war and strife, you've been living a very comfortable and quiet life. You've never truly been subjected to violence. That's a thesis, he says, which is formed in the suburbs. But in the Balkans, which is where he is from, he has seen people whose towns and villages have been plundered and burnt to the ground. People whose wives and mothers and daughters have been raped and killed. People whose fathers and husbands and, and, and brothers and sons have had their throats cut. And he's saying that if you found yourself in that situation with that kind of violence done to you, you will pick up the sword. You're not, you're not just going to forgive. It's impossible. What, forgive and not retaliate? It's impossible. You will pick up the sword and you will get sucked into that endless cycle of violence, retaliation, revenge, which we see all over the world in conflict, some of which have lasted for centuries and there's no end in sight. It's this cycle of violence and revenge. He's saying you will do that. You will take up the sword unless you truly believe deep inside that God will do it that he will take up the sword on your behalf, that you believe in divine vengeance, a divine judge, that ultimately God will do something about this. That is the only solution. It's the only way to break that cycle of human violence and retaliation. Now, this story about Noah is all about God judging human violence. It's all about God saying, I'm gonna, I need to do something about this. I'm going to deal with this situation of human violence. And if that offends you, if it's this kind of story you read and it caused you to think, well, I can't believe in a God like that, well, you've also got to understand that getting rid of God's judgment leaves you with a far bigger problem. It leaves you with an intellectual problem. It leaves you with an emotional problem. And it leaves you with no solution to the endless cycle of human violence. And so we see the necessity of judgment the necessity of a divine judge. For this world to be right, and for this world to be just, in the end, there has to be a judge. God has to judge. There has to be justice. 
Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that you read something like this and don't feel anything. That you just read it coldly, that you don't feel moved, that you don't feel a sense of horror even, a sense of grief, that you just coldly judge, because that's not what God does. I don't know if you noticed it, but it tells us something about God in here. See, the situation is dire. The situation is described is terrible. Something has got to be done. God sees what needs to be done, but it says his heart was filled with pain. God's heart was filled with pain. This wasn't a whim. This wasn't a, 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 a response out of a fit of anger, out of a temper tantrum. Now, this is... This is breaking God's heart. This is a case of sin has reached such an untenable level. This has got to such a bad level that they are destroying themselves. And God's saying, and I'm going to destroy their self-destruction. It is the same Hebrew word that's used for what God does and for what man is doing. I'm going to destroy their destruction. I'm going to corrupt their corruption. It is God's wrath. It is God's anger against the corruption of sin. It is God's judgment. But his heart is filled with pain. This isn't a distant, cold, detached God. This is a God who is deeply, deeply grieved by the state of humanity. Why? Why does he feel that grief? Why does he feel that kind of pain? He's the creator. We're just his creatures. He can do what he wants. But we see the relationship that God has with man from the very beginning. How this creation itself is just this outpouring of love and and joy and relationship and community and and, and how he looks at creation and says it's good, and he looks at man and says, that is very good. He's just delighted with man. He's delighted with what he's made. And he puts his image in us. He bestows upon us the responsibility of representing him in, in this world and looking after his creation. And he walks with Adam in the garden. There's just this picture of utter intimacy and delight that is happening here. God didn't create us because he needs us. But as an overflow of his love and out of a choice to love us, and it's like he voluntarily bound up his heart with ours. So in Isaiah 49:15, God says to Israel, he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The love that a mother has for her child, the breastfeeding child, God is saying is nothing compared to what he feels for you. She may forget, but I will not forget you is what he's saying to his people Israel. It's a staggering thing for God to say. For him to compare himself to. If you're a parent, you know how your heart gets bound up with your child's heart. You know the pain that you feel when things go wrong for your child. That's the kind of relationship that God has voluntarily put himself in with us, with humanity. He tied his heart to us. He didn't need to, he chose to. And then in the garden, we turned our back on him and said, we don't trust you. And it caused him such pain broke his heart it just caused him unbelievable pain and he could have put a stop to things right there like kind of putting down a dog because it's got violent you know oh humans have gone wrong I'm gonna I'm just gonna stop it right there but he didn't I don't know if you ever thought about this but God could have ended history right there no more nothing nothing else but he showed grace and it's like he chose to embrace the pain that we caused him he chose to weep he chose to suffer for the sins of the world in doing that God knew that he would suffer more than anybody else in history he knew he would take the brunt of this the the, the most suffering and yet he chose to let history continue why I don't know there must be a very good reason and he must love us so much so, so much. 
He could have stopped history when Cain murdered Abel. Sin has progressed. It's got to it. There's murder now. I'm going I'm to draw a line here. I'm going to stop this before it goes any further. But he doesn't. He showed grace. And in doing so, he remembered his promise about the one who was going to come. The promise he made to Eve. And then even in this story where God's judgment becomes so... It's, it's just inevitable that this judgment is coming because of the state of things. But again, he shows grace towards Noah and his family. And in doing so, he again preserves that promise of the salvation that is to come. If, he's, if he wipes everybody out, which would have been perfectly just for him to do, then there's no descendant of Eve to come. And so he saves Noah. Now why? Why Noah? Why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Well, it tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So what, is it because Noah was such a good person? Did Noah earn God's approval through being a good person? Well, he clearly knows God. He clearly walks with God. Clearly his lifestyle stands out from his generation. He's blameless among his generation. But it would be a mistake to think that Noah was accepted or approved because of his own righteousness. Later on in Noah's story, we see a distinct lack of righteousness. He gets drunk and he completely messes his family up. No, it's because of his inherited righteousness. The righteousness that is given to him by God. In the same way as for Abraham, in the same way as for Abel, who we heard about a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's by faith. Noah is saved because he believed God. He was the only one who believed God. He believed in something not yet seen, and it was credited to him as righteousness, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ was put on Noah because of his belief. He trusted in God's salvation. Now for Noah, that immediate salvation came through the judgment, not in spite of it. It is through the judgment that salvation comes. The judgment that destroys and crushes and puts a stop to human violence at the same time is saving and redeeming the world and giving the human race a second chance. Because the waters of judgment that crushed and destroyed so many also saved Noah as the ark is lifted up on those same waters. Salvation came through the judgment. Now, here's a question. What went into the ark with Noah? That's not a rhetorical one. What went into the ark with Noah? Animals. His family. Food. Well, we'll include that with the animals. There was something else, though, and that was sin. Sin went into the ark with Noah. The flood was not the solution to sin, to human sin. It delayed the growth of that human violence that was caused by sin, but it didn't completely wipe it out. As we well know, we just have to look at the world around us and we just have to look at ourselves. This wasn't the solution to sin because the story is a foreshadowing of something else. It's intended to point us to something else. First, it points us actually to the Exodus story. You know the Exodus story where the Israelites have been in, in Egypt as slaves for 400 years and then God raises up Moses, the plagues come, Moses leads the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. You know that story. Well, how is it linked to the Exodus story? Well, the, the, the Hebrew word that's used for ark in this story, the only other place in the Bible it appears outside of this story is in Exodus 2 to describe the basket that Moses, baby Moses is putting in the bulrushes. 
to save him from being killed. And then the, the, the ark that Noah built was covered in pitch. And the only other place in the Bible where the word pitch is mentioned is in Exodus 2, because it covers the basket that Moses was put in. So we have two vessels, two arks, two salvations, and they're both coated in pitch because these two stories are connected. And what happens in the Exodus story is it leads to that moment where salvation, finally, it's time for salvation for God's people. And the chosen people of God go down into the water. They're rescued from drowning purely by the power and the grace of God while their enemies get crushed behind them. The Israelite nation comes out the other side into freedom and into hope. There's a way through the waters for the righteous. For those who have inherited the righteousness of Christ, there is a way out of judgment, a way of salvation through judgment. But ultimately, of course, both of those stories, Noah's story, the story of the Exodus, they point us forward to a far greater salvation. 1 Peter 3 tells us that in the ark, only a few people in all, uh, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. But this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see in the story of Noah, we see salvation coming through the righteous judgment of God. The ark went through the judgment and it was also the means out of the judgment for those who were safely inside. And there's that amazing line that I read before in chapter seven, verse 16. They're all in the ark and it says, then the Lord shut him in. God did it. God sealed them in. He, he rescued them. He, he sheltered them. He protected them. God himself did it. And of course, it's God who would later on come as a man. Emmanuel, God with us. He would come as Jesus on a far bigger rescue mission. He would come to save the world from their sin and from the coming righteous judgment of God. It's Jesus who, like the ark, went through that judgment. Initially, he was crushed under the weight of the judgment on the cross, but then he emerged victorious over sin and over death. When all hope seemed to be lost, Jesus emerged victorious as he came out of that tomb on the third day. And it's only in him. It's only in Christ, just like Noah and his family were in the ark. It's only in Christ that we are safe and that we'll be carried through that righteous judgment of God that is coming and that we will come out the other side and instead of receiving justice, instead of getting what we deserve, we receive now and we will receive in the future the wonderful, incredible, abundant and lavish grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are, where? In Christ Jesus. The justice of God and the love of God are both ultimately, completely, perfectly satisfied at the cross. Through his judgment, through the judgment of God, the wrath of God being poured out on him, we are saved. Through being in him, sheltered in him, hidden in him, we are saved. So question, are you in him? Are you in Christ? The story of Noah shows us God will not tolerate sin forever. There is a limit. He won't allow evil, depravity, human violence to go on indefinitely. The judgment that we see in the story points us forward to a final judgment that is coming. A day of judgment, a day of reckoning that is coming when God will judge the earth. 
Noah and his family were saved through that judgment by God's grace, purely by God's grace. And then they were able to step out of the ark into a renewed world, completely new, to start again. Are you going to be saved through the judgment of God that is coming to be able to step out into a new creation, the new heavens, the new earth that God is bringing, a world that's been cleansed of evil and of sin and there's no death and it's been completely renewed by God. See, I am making all things new is what he says in in the book of Revelation. Are you going to be saved through that judgment that is coming or are you going to be destroyed and crushed by it? Only in Christ can you be saved. Only in Christ and only by his grace. So are you in Christ? If you are, does your life bear witness to that, to those around you? Do you look like someone who's been saved? Do you look like you have received and live as if you have received the inherited righteousness of Christ purely by the grace of God? Rejoice in your salvation. Let it show. Let the world know about your salvation. Rejoice in the grace of God and let it permeate every single area of your life and then go and show him to a dying world. But if you're not in Christ, the invitation is there. It's like the door of the ark is still open and he calls you in. He's beckoning you to come in. Do you know God desires that all would be saved and it breaks his heart that some are not. He desires that all would be saved, but he's not going to force you. He's not going to force anyone to come in. You have to respond to his call because the rain is coming. Right at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. He is coming. The rain is coming. Judgment of God is coming. So are you in Christ? Because that's the only way to be saved.